conditions Not free market propaganda and corrupt politicians Cause they owned by special interest groups that fund their campaign That's why you hear the same old things they claim but change never came It's a dirty game maintained by rain for capital gain Welcome to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio I'm your host, Mickey Huff On today's program, I'm sharing with you a talk that I recently hosted for KPFA, sponsored by Project Censored as well, of longtime activist and labor lawyer Dan Kavalik. His latest, Cancel This Book, The Progressive Case Against Cancel Culture, was the subject of the July 13 talk that he gave. On today's program, we'll hear excerpts from that talk and the Q&A that I hosted with Dan Kavalik. Today in the Project Censored show, Cancel This Book, progressive case against cancel culture. Stay with us. Welcome to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. On today's show, we are sharing excerpts with you of a talk by Dan Kavalik, his book, Cancel This Book, The Progressive Case Against Cancel Culture. We share excerpts of that program and Q&A with you today. Please welcome tonight's guest, the author of Cancel This Book, The Progressive Case Against Cancel Culture. I give you Dan Kavalik. Dan, take it away. Mickey, thank you so much for having me on this show and for your support over the years. I believe that the left in this country has begun to abandon the idea and the importance of free speech in the interest of, well, I suppose, for lack of a better word, canceling the speech of others that they disagree with. In preparing for this talk, I just happened to watch one of my favorite films. It's Bob Dylan, No Direction Home, a documentary about Bob Dylan, one of my heroes. And it occurred to me how much of his career was very relevant to this discussion, because I think, as most of you know, in the mid-1960s, when Bob went electric, he would play to audiences that booed him. And in fact, in the film, he says, boy, this is crazy. My tickets sell out in minutes. Are these people just buying tickets so they can come and boo me? Years later, I think we recognize, and certainly the Nobel Committee that gave him a Nobel Prize for Literature recognizes that Dylan's work from folk singer to rock singer to something that transcends that has been a huge value to us. But that was not necessarily recognized at the time he was doing what he was doing. And that's important to this discussion because none of us have a monopoly on wisdom or knowledge or on what will bring social change. And so I think the idea of tolerating and allowing for different views to be aired is critical in order for for us to find truth. I think we find truth by debating, by discussing. And I think there is a move amongst the left, certainly amongst the right too, 
by the way, I mean, the right is worse than anyone in terms of censoring people, but I'm focusing on the left because that's where I come from. That's where I live. I think there's a huge movement on the left that has decided that they need to censor people and need to cancel people. What does that mean? Essentially, it means if someone says or writes something that someone finds offensive, many times it's on social media, right? Facebook, Twitter, etc. There's a phenomenon in which people will quickly mob this person. Again, many times on social media, but not always. Harass the person, condemn the person. And in fact, in many circumstances, ask for that person to be fired for their status and their reputation to be destroyed. And this is something that many of us have seen. Some of us have experienced it, but many of us have witnessed this. And a lot of leftists deny that this exists, okay? And I find that very troubling because I think all of us have seen this happen. So either you're living under a rock or you're being disingenuous to say this is not a real phenomenon. So I always find it important to speak in specifics. So what led me to write this book? It wasn't a book I planned on writing. I focus on U.S. foreign policy, criticizing U.S. intervention abroad. This book deviates from that, although it relates to it, and I'll explain why. So in the summer of 2020, last year, at kind of the early stages of the protests that followed the murder of George Floyd, a very prominent peace activist in Pittsburgh, that's where I live, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, her name is Molly Rush, maybe some of you have heard of her, posted a meme on Facebook. And the meme was as follows. It had a picture of Martin Luther King, and it said, never rioted, never looted, change the world. Immediately, people on Facebook began to attack her, to call her a racist, and to call for her cancellation. And what does that mean in this case? Molly Rush is an 85-year-old peace activist. She helped to found 50 years ago, 50 years ago, the Thomas Merton Center of Pittsburgh, one of the oldest peace and justice organizations in the United States. She was a member of the Plowshares 8 before that, a group which included the Berrigan brothers, if you remember them. They did an action at a nuclear missile site to protest U.S. nuclear proliferation. And they risked very, very serious prison time. In the end, she got 11 weeks, which for her was huge. She had a husband and kids at the time. And again, she went on to found the Thomas Merton Center and to live really a life as an activist. So she posted this meme. And people called for her to be deplatformed and canceled. 
And what this meant in the end was that the Thomas Merton Center Board, the board of the center she created, helped create 50 years before, put out a letter to all the members and they posted it on Facebook. It was an open letter that said that Molly had posted a racist meme. They didn't say what it was, didn't describe it. So you couldn't assess whether it was racist or not. They said that she had not apologized for posting it, which was not true. She did post an apology on Facebook. But in the end, they said because of these things, they could no longer associate Molly Rush in the future. And they have kept that promise up to this moment. The Thomas Merton Center will not work with Molly Rush because of one me that she posted. I could certainly see how people interpreted it in ways that were not favorable to her. However, I interpreted it, and many others did, as a statement criticizing some of the violence surrounding the protest of last summer. And I think that some of the tactics of last summer should be criticized, or at least are amenable to criticism. If one wants people to participate in a movement in protests, those who participate should have the right to say, well, I think some of the tactics are not working. They're not good. In this case, Molly and others were saying some of the violence associated with the protests were counterproductive, which I think as a fact is true. In fact, if you look in my book describes this, if you look at the polls before the George Floyd murder, the support for Black Lives Matter was pretty tepid. After his murder and, and after the first protests, the support for Black Lives Matter increased to the point where the vast majority of the American people supported Black Lives Matter and the protest. But as the summer went on, that shifted to the point where by the end of the summer, the polls show people supported Black Lives Matter and the protests less than they did before George Floyd's murder. And the polls showed that this was attributed to the fact that there was some violence associated with the protest. Now, it's important to point out that most of the protests were peaceful, as we were told. The stats I saw were like that 97% of the protests were peaceful, which is true. But there were 9,000 protests over the summer, 9,000. If you do the math, 3% of those is about 270. That means there were three, on average, three violent protests a day for the entire summer of 2020. So one could be forgiven for viewing the protest as violent. And it did not help the movement. It hurt the movement. And so why not say it? Why not say that that was not a good tactic? And the other interesting fact that I point out in the book, by the way, while people said Molly was racist in raising this issue, the truth is, again, the New York Times reported on this and others 
that most of the violence was being done by young white men, either black bloc anarchists on the one hand or right-wing folks on the other who wanted to undermine the protest or to cause a race war. Point is, the critique of the violence was not racist because it was mostly white people doing it. And so why couldn't we have this discussion? Why was this a cancelable act? And others were canceled. There was a guy named David Shore, probably some of you heard of him. He posted a uh, report, research report on Twitter that showed, by the way, the guy who did the research was a person of color that concluded that nonviolent protests are more effective at winning people over than violent protests. Literally, people called for David Shore to be fired for simply posting this report, and he was fired. Again, why can't we discuss these things? Why can't we honestly talk about tactics of a movement without fearing being canceled? And this, in the end, is why I wrote the book, because my view is you should not be canceled or or even fear risking being canceled because you say, hey, maybe you shouldn't burn down minority-owned businesses in the process of a protest. Maybe you should not burn down a million-dollar center for indigenous people in Minneapolis, which happened as part of racial justice protests. Maybe you shouldn't try to burn down the entire apartment building in Portland that the mayor lived in because you don't like the mayor, even though other people lived in the apartment, which happened. But there was no room for discussion on these things. People who raised these issues were canceled, even though in places like Portland, leaders of Black Lives Matter, leaders of the NAACP said that some of the violence that was happening beginning around midnight each evening, and again, being led by young white men for the most part, had nothing to do with Black Lives Matter, that their cause was being hijacked by these folks. So why can't we say that? Why is that verboten? And that is the concern that somehow we are now in this period where someone, I guess, the loudest people are deciding that certain issues are off limits for discussing. And I think that is destroying the movement because one, again, we can't have a discussion that leads to resolutions that may be positive, such as that maybe we could agree that that sort of violence is not acceptable. But also what it is doing is making people afraid to tell their opinions. People are afraid to criticize protests and tactics. They're afraid to talk about issues of race and gender because they're afraid that if they don't speak in certain terms, they will be attacked and again, maybe fired from their jobs. And this is not leading to good outcomes.
one example of this that I, th and I talk about this in the book, is the pandemic and the lockdowns. And again, I think anyone on this call, if you're online at all, if you're on social media, you saw this. If people criticize at all the lockdowns that have occurred over the last year and a half, people would be attacked as anti-vaxxers and Trump supporters, etc. And there's certainly some of those people, those people exist. But in the meantime, the lockdowns were carried out in a way that I'm going to just say no one could dispute. They were carried out in such a way that the 1% in this country who owns 50% of the wealth made trillions, over $3 trillion during the pandemic while the working people lost over $3 trillion. So what we can conclude is that the lockdowns, whether justified or not, were carried out in a way that benefited the rich to the detriment of the poor. Meanwhile, you had people, again, many liberals, many leftists saying, oh, you know, stay at home and because I can stay at home and I have a computer and I have Wi-Fi. And if you're not staying at home, you're a bad person. And if you're a little business person with a barber shop or a music store, you shouldn't operate. Meanwhile, Walmart and you know, Target and Amazon, the big companies were operating at will. And yet people were canceled because they merely questioned how this was being carried out. And again, at the end of the day, it was carried out in a way that led to the greatest distribution of wealth from the poor to the rich that we have ever seen. And yet, if I say that, I'm risking being canceled as an anti-vaxxer, as a Trump supporter. This is insane. This is not leading to good results. That is why we support free speech. That's why there was a free speech movement in Berkeley, because there is an understanding that if we have vibrant speech and discussion and debate, we can reach good outcomes. When we suppress these things, we have terrible outcomes. And so in the end, we had terrible outcome. Again, we had a lockdown that ended in the poor becoming poorer, the rich becoming richer. You're listening to Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. We'll return to the program after this brief musical break. Stay with us. protests on the scale we've never seen. Apparently 30 million people protested last summer, which is incredible. It's a record number of people. And what was the result of it? Not much. 
I'm sorry, not much, because there was a limited scope of of discussion of what was being demanded, of the tactics, of the strategy, and because of that, we gained pretty much nothing. I'll just give another example, again, at the risk of being canceled, but I talk about this in the book. People who opposed the slogan of defund the police were canceled. They were hounded. People called for them to be fired as racist, etc. The defund the police slogan was, as an objective matter, the worst slogan anyone has ever come up with. No one supported it. No one. The polls showed that African Americans supported it the most, and they supported it at a rate of 33% to 67% who opposed it. No one supports defund the police. And yet, if you said, oh, we shouldn't defund the police, oh, you're a right winger, blah, blah, you're a racist. No. You're smart. And where are we now? How effective was it? The liberal city of New York City has now uh, is about to elect an ex-cop. No one supported this slogan. And yet we were told you can't question this slogan. And, you know, people were cajoled into not questioning it. And it failed. It failed miserably. And it will never be resurrected as a slogan. In fact, I guarantee it will hurt the chances of progressives being elected in the midterms. We can count on this. But again, a lot of liberals and leftists cancel people for saying this, for just saying the truth, for saying what is so obvious to everyone, right? And that's the problem. The left used to care about truth, used to care about free speech, used to care about facts. They don't care about it anymore. They care about religious dogma, their religious dogma. And whenever you have a religious dogma that cannot be challenged, in fact, can't be questioned, and it's not even a matter of asserting something, but simply questioning it. In the end, I don't think you end up in the place you want to, and you certainly don't advance social justice. You undermine it by doing this, and that's the point of my book. And this censorship that, again, I think a lot of liberals and people on the left have applauded. You know, they applaud Trump being kicked off of Twitter, for example, and people, again, that they don't like being canceled off of Twitter or Facebook. Most of those censorship is being used against the left. Studies show this. And so people are applauding censorship that really is destroying their own movement in order to go after others. And again, many civil rights and civil liberties leaders have always understood this. They've always understood that you may not like what someone else says, but you will defend their right to say it. And that spirit has been lost greatly. 
and again, amongst the left who should support it. I mentioned in the book a guy, I think he actually lives in the Bay Area now. I studied with him at Columbia Law School. His name is John A. Powell. He's an African-American. At the time I studied under him, he was at the ACLU. And his class was probably one of the most interesting classes I had. His view was that civil rights, particularly the rights of African-Americans to have equal rights with others and civil liberties, that is the right of free speech, free assembly, etc. Those were corollary rights in ones that supported each other. That is to say that civil rights were promoted by civil liberties and vice versa. And his position was, look, if you want to deal with racism, allow people to talk about their feelings about race. He did say, and his position was, not in a way that's hate speech to the point where people were prevented from participating in various fora, in various institutions. But short of that, people should be allowed to engage in speech and debate over such important issues as race, gender, etc. And that would lead to greater understanding and less racism. That was his view, that more speech is better, not less. And that's my view. I'll just say, I think people are now being cajoled into not wanting to even ask questions that they have about the important issues of the day, lest they be canceled, right? And that does not help. I think in the end, it alienates each other, ourselves from each other. There was a very interesting article, in fact, in the New York Post. I know people go, oh, the New York Post is conservative. We shouldn't read the New York Post. But it's pretty fascinating, and I I would urge you to read it. And it's by a guy writing about Washington Square Park in, in New York City, which I know very well. I spent three years studying at Columbia. And what the guy writes about is the fact that, I guess, Washington Square Park at the moment is now, for lack of a better word, a den of iniquity. People smoking crack. It's a mess. Meanwhile, you have some people protesting every night at Washington Square Park to defund the police, mostly white people, by the way. And what the guy says is, look, these people are tone deaf. You have serious issues in places like Washington Square Park. And he's not pro-police, but he's saying, look, in the end, the police are kind of left to deal with this problem. And why? Because there's a lack of solidarity with poor people, with drug addicts. People will come out and they'll protest the cops. But where are people supporting those on the bottom rung of our society? And I think a lot of the cancel culture and a lot of what passes for the left ignores that. They're more interested in symbols, in symbolic victories like taking down a statue or, again, canceling some individual than solving social issues. And if I may, and I'm I'm sure this is going to offend people, I'm sorry, the Bay Area may be the greatest example of this on earth. You have the most liberal 
people on earth living in the Bay. I used to love the Bay Area. I don't anymore. I'm sorry. I, you know, I love a lot of people there. I love you all. But when I went there 20 years ago, I thought it was freaking Oz. I thought it was the most beautiful place I've ever been. Now, I mean, what I see when I go to the Bay Area is massive homelessness. Meanwhile, people are like protesting about, you know, what? Symbols. There's a high school, I'm sure you know about, in San Francisco that tried to destroy a huge mural that a communist had painted during the Roosevelt years, during the New Deal, which happened to show honestly the history of slavery and the the murder of indigenous but they thought this was too triggering for the high school students that went there high school students that will go home and if they're lucky if they have a home many won't have a home as we know in san francisco and no one cares about that if they do have a home they're going to go home and play call of duty watch violent movies but they can't see a mural a painting In the end, it was Danny Glover that at least saved it and said, well, maybe cover it instead of destroying it. But this is what the left does now. I'm sorry. This is what the left focuses on. Destroying paintings, preventing Huckleberry Finn and To Kill a Mockingbird from being in public schools and libraries. This is a distraction from the real things that are plaguing us. I saw in Venice... Southern California, they're now going to take all the homeless off Venice Beach and put them where, who the hell knows. Again, very liberal place. And in the meantime, there'll be a protest to take down a statue. But who's speaking for these people? Anyone? We're now engaged in wars abroad that are killing tens of thousands of people. There's no one on the streets about this. But you can get people to come out to tear down a statue or call to defund the police, though no one supports that. I'll end it here. And again, I'm sure I will get much vitriol. But I'm sorry, the left in the U.S. is a disgrace. I think cancel culture is part of it. It is a left that does not care what the results of, of its work is, for the most part. And frankly, that pretty much is aligned with the bourgeoisie, who is, by the way, about as woke as anyone, right? I mean, they're happy to take on these symbols. Those are my thoughts, and I was probably a little too candid, but hey, why not? Again, like Dylan going electric, why not? You know, you do what you believe in, and you live with the consequences. the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff, listening to excerpts from a talk by Dan Kavalik. Cancel this book, The Progressive Case Against Cancel Culture. That talk resumes after this brief musical break. Stay tuned.
Dan Kavalik, let's get to some of our comments here and some of the questions from our wonderful guests. There's two, these kind of go together, but let's do this first one. They want you to name some prominent left leaders or organizations that fall within your idea of what the left is. So maybe you can help define that or help sort of frame that for us, for our audience, Dan Kavalik. That's a good question. First of all, I'll just say I'm, I'm not a member of any particular group at the moment. I've have been a member of various groups. But I have some respect for the Party for Socialism and Liberation, which I think does some good stuff. I think that there's some aspects of the Democratic Socialists of America that I support. Certainly, it's not a uniform group, but I think there's some good things that they have to offer. Those are the groups that come to mind that I think some good things are coming out of. I might just add that in terms of media or news groups that I think are progressive and doing some good things, the Gray Zone comes to mind, Mint Press, of course, Project Censored. Yeah. So one of the attendees also wants to talk about the defund the police slogan, admitting that it may not be the best slogan, but goes on to say that it does mean to reorganize and reprioritize funds for mental health issues and homelessness, school counselors, social services. Um, I do know people on the left, critical theorists like Gio Mar and others that have argued about defunding the police. But again, this person is at least pointing out that essentially, if I'm interpreting it accurately, again, may not be the best slogan, but it also doesn't necessarily always imply defunding and getting into the police. But there are definitely some people on the left end of the spectrum that do argue that we should defund and rid the police in order to restructure society. Any further comments you have about that? Yeah, I would just say, and I point this out in my book, that most people polled in the U.S. By the way, most people polled in the U.S. have progressive ideas, even if they may consider themselves conservatives or whatever. On the issues, most Americans are pretty good on the issues. One issue they're good on is the idea that the police should be reformed, that more money should be put towards social programs than police at the present, that there should be prison reform, judicial reform. So I think the person who mentioned that is correct. What I would just say is that if you have a political slogan that says one thing, but you have to over-explain it to mean something else, you've already failed. What is a possible alternative kind of slogan that means the complex ideas behind it that isn't directly the defund type mantra? How yeah. might you reframe it? Yeah, I mean, one might be, well, reform the police. Well, that might be the first one I would say. Reform the police, reform the prison system. And police brutality, again, people support that. They don't want that. More police oversight, more police accountability, that sort of thing. But again, by and large, people do not buy the idea of simply defunding the police. Not pro-police, but again, if you're coming up with a slogan, that is just not what people are looking for at the moment. Dan Kavalik, another one of our attendees this evening asks, what do you think are the origins of the left's cancel culture bent? Now, look, I'm gonna use this opportunity to remind everyone that when we started here, you did make a comment about right-wing cancel culture, which is of course rampant. Historically, much of this kind of canceling and censorship comes from an authoritarian perspective on the right, but your book 
specifically focuses on this issue within right. the left because again you find it to be somewhat hypocritical and contradictory in in a lot of ways that you do describe at length in your book and you certainly went into that here this evening to some degree so again where do you think the origins of left cancel culture come from this attendee also says it seems something about a super sensitivity it seems worthwhile to figure out the origin so we can understand it and change what are your thoughts and i do discuss this in the book i think there's a few sources for this um one is a sense of fatalism amongst the left again i'll just throw out one particular event those of us old enough to remember will remember that in 2002 up to the spring of 2003 we had some of the biggest peace protests ever in the world trying to stop the invasion of Iraq. And I remember that. I remember bringing my little babies there. They're now adults, right? Many of us did that. In the end, the U.S. did invade Iraq. And the peace movement pretty much died overnight once the boots were on the ground. And it largely has not come back. It's almost 20 years ago. And I think there is a feeling of futility in the left that we can't stop wars, we can't end homelessness, we can't stop global warming, etc. So we will settle for canceling an, a professor who, I'll just give an example, last summer fell asleep or people claim fell asleep during a Zoom call relating to racial diversity or whatever. So, okay, we're not going to change the world. We're not going to change much, but we can cancel one person. We can take down one statue. I think there is a certain futility that people feel that has led to this. And I empathize with that feeling, but I don't think one should give into it. So that's one explanation. Obviously, another explanation that many people give, and I think it's apt, is the emergence of social media, which is pretty new, right? When I was a young person, we didn't have social media. We didn't have the internet. We didn't even have cell phone. And so the idea of being able to muster people immediately to mob someone on the internet was just not existent. It is now. So it's an easy form of action which can often be confused with activism. Generally, I don't think it's a form of activism, but many people mistake it for that. And it's a very easy one. You can do it from your bedroom in your fuzzy slippers. You don't have to go to a protest. You don't have to go get your torch and pitchfork and burn someone's house down. You know, you just do it on your computer. So I think that is a huge part of it. I also think the third, so I've given you two, the third, and I, you know, I think this deserves more discussion, but more more discussion than we have time for, is the emergence in the 60s and 70s of something called postmodernism. And it was this philosophy, which I believe has taken root in this country. It emerged in academia, but it's bled out into the rest of society, which there were a couple aspects to it. And one aspect to it was first of all, that there was not an objective reality, that everything really was about subjective feelings that people have. And so if someone says, oh, I feel offended by something, it doesn't really matter if there's an objective basis for that feeling. If you feel it, you feel it, it's legitimate, and therefore you can 
cancel someone based on it. And it's also a philosophy that gave up class analysis in exchange for focusing on racial and gender differences, I think to the great detriment of the left. At this point, I discuss this in the book, if you even argue about class identity, class struggle, you're considered a class reductionist and a racist. It's become so dominant, this view, and what it has led to is a total abandonment of the working class. Well, Dan Kavalik, even African-American Marxists like Adolph Reed Jr. have experienced this, arguing about the absence of class in these kind of identitarian conflicts, that there's a group of these people on the left that are also now arguing, particularly with the latest flap about critical race theory, you're a legal scholar. 99% of people hadn't heard of it until a month ago, including the people that are wanting to ban the teaching of something that they never learned about. I think it's quite insightful of you to bring class back into it. If we're going to go back to Crenshaw and we're going to go back to the importance of intersectionality in social science research, race, class, and gender, we need to be very intersectionable. We need to be intersectional about our intersectionality um, rather than uh, separate. So I'm very, uh, I'm heartened to hear you bring class back into the conversation. Riffing on what you just said, there is another comment and question that goes more into gender issues. And one of our attendees asks, do you have an opinion about conflicts between trans women and women who want to differentiate between those born female and trans? I would add particularly within the feminist movements where there are arguments going on right now in feminist theory, sports, bathrooms, women's groups. And what about progressives privileging the appointment or election of trans over not trans in an effort to make up for the very damaging discrimination trans people experience, very real discrimination and violence that trans people experience in our culture. Dan Kavalik. Well, it's a great question. And my feeling is first and foremost, that one should be allowed to air their feelings about these issues and discuss these issues honestly, without being called a transphobe and a bigot. These issues are important. The transgender issue is, at least for the greater society, a very new issue. So I think it's fair game for people to question these types of issues. I'll just give one example. There's a lot of examples, but there was an advertisement for a HIV drug, and in the advertisement, they give that list of things that you shouldn't take it with or whatever. And they say may also not be appropriate for people designated female at birth. And like, I think it is a fair question whether people are actually being designated at birth willy nilly a certain gender. Like, I'm sorry, I, I don't believe that. And people shouldn't be canceled for questioning that. I have a little podcast that I do, and I had a transgender woman on my show, and she doesn't believe a lot of that. Even within the transgender movement, there's a lot of debate about these things, about whether trans women should be allowed in a women's domestic abuse shelters, for example, or whether there's such thing as a female penis. And again, the person I interviewed didn't think 
that there is such a thing or that trans women should be allowed in these domestic abuse shelters. But the point is this. I really don't come out one way or the other on these issues. I'm still learning about them. But I think it's fair to ask questions about them and for society to debate these issues and come up with a solution. I don't think it's appropriate to shut down debate, to try to stop people from talking about this or questioning this. I think it's a complicated issue that deserves debate and discussion. And I defend people to honestly and in good faith air their feelings and thoughts about it. Dan Kavalik, just riffing back, uh, one of our audience members chimed in when we were talking about different ideas for slogans. Someone suggested rethink the police as a possible type of slogan. In other words, reconsider and rethink the entire framework, how we call things criminal justice versus social justice or restorative justice, maybe these kind of things. I like it. I like it. Again, we think the police are just rethink policing. I like it. And again, most Americans support that sort of thing. We should try to meet those people instead of pushing them away with slogans that turn people off. There's been backlash, of course, around this whole concept of cancel culture. And also it's instilled fear in certain groups in society. Some activists would say that that's rightful and that's what consequence culture looks like. But one of our attendees says, do you see a bigger agenda behind the lack of focus on results versus symbols? And I would particularly call out the kind of performative wokeness we see in corporate culture that has permeated the professional managerial class of higher education, Dan Kavalik. Exactly. You've raised an important point. I do think people by and large, on the left, care less, again, I'll make a generalization, tend to care less about results than about appearances. And again, and now I'm going to raise a very controversial thing, but the defund the police protest of last summer may have, we're not certain, okay, but there are some indication that they led to the police withdrawing from certain areas and cities to the point where in certain cities, the homicide rate, particularly the homicide rate against African-Americans has increased. So if you really care about black lives, you would care about that. You would care about the fact that possibly some protests that claim to care about black lives led to more black people dying. That is not proven, but there is some thought that that is true. And we should be honestly questioning whether it's true. We have to care about consequences. We have to care if what we do as an activist is actually resulting in the things that we want to create. And I think often that is not the case. And again, that people are willing and happy to engage in virtue signaling and other things that don't create much progress and in fact may create a reaction that is reactionary and, and, and regressive. So I, I do think that's a huge part of the left. And the left has to be able to have discussion, debate, and self-criticism over those things, or we will just fail. We will fail.
You're listening to Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. We'll return to the program after this brief musical break. Stay with us. Well, it's also, we see this major institutions, particularly corporations, trying to chime in to be on the, the so-called right side of that debate. Nike supporting, say, Colin Kaepernick or Levi's flying a Black Lives Matter flag. Meanwhile, there's no focus on the racism and classism of their supply chain. There's no focus on Nike having 12-year-old Vietnamese girls make tennis shoes. Again, you mentioned the word distraction earlier. And this seems like a, a commercial corporate type of virtue signaling that's actually co-opting a lot of some of the important messaging on the left about these kinds of issues. How do you see that factoring in in any way to the whole cancel culture kind of debate? I think because these symbols have been so adopted by corporate America and by the State Department, Honestly, I think one has to wonder whether those symbols have much progressive utility. You look at the CIA recruitment video that came out about a month ago. It was a woke word salad. I mean, that's all I, I can describe it. I mean, they literally threw as much woke language in there as they possibly could. It doesn't mean necessarily that that type of language is counter productive, but one has to start questioning whether it is. If the CIA thinks that is how they're going to recruit people, if the U.S. State Department is flying the rainbow flags and BLM flags over embassies abroad in countries that we're bombing, and that is happening, there's a great article today on Consortium News about this, then one has to wonder whether those things while at one point progressive aren't anymore. I mean, many things are co-opted to the point where what was revolutionary becomes counter-revolutionary. And I think, again, we have to have an honest discussion about that. That's all. We're back to the theme and thesis of your book about censorship backfires in many ways. It calls maybe even more attention to certain things on one level, but on another, it prevents us from having these empathetic discussions even with people that we might find difficult or, quote, on the other side, we've really seen this rift and this divide, whether it was what Higdon and I wrote in the United States of Distraction or Matt Taibbi wrote about in Hate Incorporated on how the media basically get us further and further fighting each other. And I think one of the positive things about your book, Dan, is that you encourage dialogue and debate, you encourage empathy, and you also remind us that mistakes are things to build on and conversations are way to build bridges, even where we may think the expanse is too big. And so maybe a good way for us to wrap up our conversation on that type of note too, is to remind us as in many of our, our struggles that they're not entirely new. They may have new terms, new phrases, new frames, but you go back in your book to Shank v. US, 1919, 102 years ago. A lot of interesting similarities going on there. History may not repeat, but it certainly rhymes. You know, that whole return to normalcy when the U.S. is coming out of an imperialist war in a pandemic with the Espionage Act, massive racial unrest and violence against African-Americans. We have to remember 
that there were great restrictions put against speech that were mostly, again, then used against the left and against progressive movements. And so the danger of cancel culture comes with that kind of slippery slope history, sort of past as prologue. So could you talk to us about that past as prologue? What have we learned from the past about this issue? This isn't something that's brand new. And what are some key points that you, certainly your work as a legal scholar, a labor activist, a human rights activist, an anti-war activist, what are some lessons from the past that really helped inform the way you put together this book, Dan Kovale? I think one thing from the past that comes to mind is the McCarthy period. From the post-war era in the late 1940s up till, let's just say, the early 70s or so, there was a very strong anti-communist current in this country. And it was joined in by not just conservatives, but many liberals joined in as well, and many unions. Many unions signed the anti-communist pledges, purged the unions of communists, supported the Cold War to the point where unions, the AFL-CIO, supported the coup in Guatemala in 1954 and the coup against the Ande in 1973. The point is that a lot of progressive forces embraced the anti-communist McCarthy sentiment and purges, greatly to the detriment of the social forces of the United States, particularly the unions. The unions destroyed much of the militant progressive base that they had and really set back the union movement, maybe forever. I mean, it's only shrunk since that time. And so, again, maybe they had issues with the views of some of these folks in the Communist Party or sympathizers. But in the end, these were the best allies, the best organizers, the best militants, they should not have been canceled in the way they were. And we're seeing that today. One has to be very careful about throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Dan Kavalik, I think that's a good note to end on this evening. I also want to remind everyone that you can get Dan Kavalik's book, Cancel This Book, The Progressive Case Against Canceled Culture, out from Hot Books. Um, it's available at your favorite online independent bookstore. Notice I did not say Amazon. There's a lot of great indie bookstores in the Bay Area, Moe's yes. on Telegraph, City Lights, and so forth, or, or wherever you happen to be watching. I also wanted to remind folks that in the book, we didn't have time to get into this this evening with Dan Kavalik, but you talk about intersectional war and imperialism, Russia baiting of Bernie Sanders and Tulsi Gabbard and the new McCarthyism, witch hunts in the academy. You talk about the cancellation of Palestine, yeah. right? So there's a lot of integration of your past. As you said, this was kind of a different book for you in some ways, yet not in others. And I certainly encourage anyone, including the critics, the people that didn't read the book that were questioning the event even taking place, I would encourage you all to, to read Dan Kavalik's book and take up one of the challenges of trying to reach across the divide and keep a conversation going. And are you against even? If you don't think that what Dan Kavalik has said this evening is the best path to go, what do you think is the best path to go? How can we learn from different ways of looking at things? And I think that that's generally the spirit of your book overall, Dan Kavalik. I don't believe I'm misrepresenting it. You did a great job summarizing it. 
And I had a great time this evening. I thank you, Mickey. Dan Kabalik, again, we look forward to having you back for more. We'll be airing some of this on the Project Censored show. Thanks, Dan Kabalik. Thanks, all of you, for being here. Stay well. Be safe. Be civil if you can. And try to really think about cancel culture, open dialogue, and why censorship is something we should all try to avoid. Thanks, everybody. Have a great evening. Supporting human conditions, not free market propaganda and corrupt politicians. Cause they own by special interest groups that fund their campaign. That's why you hear the same old things they claim, but change never came. It's a dirty game maintained by rain for capital gain. And that does it for another episode of the Project Censored Show. I'm the executive producer, co-founder, and host of the program, Mickey Huff. Our senior producer is Anthony Fest. The Project Censored Show airs on roughly 50 stations around the United States from Maui to New York. To learn more about our program or to see our archives, you can go to projectcensored.org. Please follow us, like us on social media outlets, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter while we're still there and not canceled. And also, if you would like to get in touch with us, you can contact us through projectcensored.org. Thanks to you all for tuning in. We'll see you next time. Habitualized alibis, disguise, and other guys of democracy, politics, and the apocalypse. Got the skies looking ominous. So the ocean burned bright with waves full of poison. Genocide, wars, fall for little poison. The weapons manufactured pay for why tax them all the bridges and the levees and the mines collapsing. All the prisons, build the capacity, citizens, and the ties for the master thief. Combine and conquer, steal a masterpiece. Open your eyes and realize what's happening. Times running out the reach, all potential fame at the table, then you're probably on the menu. 